This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. I'm your host, Benjamin Linder. Today on the podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by three guests for a discussion of art, politics, and public space. Dr. Mei Ching Wong is a professor of art history at California State University, Northridge. Dr. Hong Kao is associate professor in the Department of Visual Art and Art History at York University. And Dr. Mina Valyaka is professor in contemporary art history and theory from a global perspective at the Leiden University Center for the Arts and Society. We came together to discuss the new book, Socially Engaged Public Art in East Asia, Space, Place, and Community in Action, published this year by Vernon Press. Mei-Chin served as the editor of the volume, and all three of today's guests contributed chapters to the project. The book includes case studies from across East Asia. As Grant Kester writes in his foreword to the volume, the book, quote, offers the first comprehensive survey of new forms of socially engaged art in the region, end quote. The following conversation explores the importance of public art as a mode of political engagement, urban contestation, and community action in East Asia. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Mei-Ching Wang, Hong Kao, and Mina Valyaka. Dr. Mei-Ching Wong, Dr. Hong Kao, and Dr. Mina Valyaka, thank you for joining us on the channel. We really appreciate you guys taking the time. The occasion for us talking together today is the publication of a new book called Socially Engaged Public Art in East Asia, Space, Place, and Community in Action. It was published this year by Vernon Press, and all three of you contributed chapters to the volume. Mei-Ching, you served as the editor for the collection, so I want to start the first question with you. Can you just introduce the book to our listeners and tell us how this project got off the ground? Of course, Ben. First of all, thank you so much for this great opportunity to talk about the book with Hong and Mina. The book began with a panel that I chaired for the annual conference of the Association for Asian Studies in early 2019. Back then, I titled the panel Public Art and Public Space, Cases from Contemporary China and Japan. Several months later, I was approached by an editor from Vernon Press, asking whether I would be interested in editing a book based on the panel. I actually hesitated a little bit initially because I was like planning in the middle of writing a book on socially engaged public art, focusing on mainland China. So I thought, uh, but then I soon decided that, that this could be a great opportunity to learn more about new public art practices across the broad region of East Asia, something I always wanted to do anyway. So I took this publication project. I approached the contributors of the conference panel and also reached out to other scholars uh, like Min and Hong, who I either collaborated before or I learned about their similar research interest. Originally, I collected 10 scholars, but three dropped in the middle for various reasons. Fortunately, I had a total of eight scholars, including myself, sticking to the end of this two-year and four-month journey. So my sincere thanks to all of them, including Hong and Mina here. Now about the book itself. The subject of the book is the diverse and evolving field of socially engaged public art in East Asia. The overall goal of the book is to explore how public art has been employed by artists, curators, ordinary citizens, grassroots organizations, and community members to raise awareness of prevailing social problems, local or uh, regional, foster collaborations among people of diverse social and intellectual backgrounds, establish alternative value systems and social relations, and stimulate individual and collective actions to advance changes in real-life situations. The book has a total of eight chapters discussing the historical, global, and regional connections, and most importantly, the current manifestations of socially engaged public art in East Asian region. These chapters cover case studies and theoretical inquiries on artistic practices from Hong Kong, Japan, 
mainland China, South Korea, and Taiwan, with the focus on the period since the 2000s. Each chapter is an endeavor to observe, document, and analyze the works of practitioners who mingle contemporary art, activism, and civic politics in their desire to expand the relevance of art to the lives of ordinary people and to the growth of public spheres. The authors look at how, in acting out on their belief in the potential of public art, various practitioners seek to activate or create public spaces for alternative encounters and human togetherness, rediscover or reinvent significance in ordinary places, and enact or build the relevance of communities for contemporary living. While each chapter is distinct in its methodology and focus, I think they all share the aspiration to frame the aesthetic, social, and political implications of socially engaged public art from East Asia in relation to the rising or expanding border of public spheres. So to sum up, I would say the book as a whole seeks to docu- uh, demonstrate that through the endeavors of critically-minded art professionals, and other people they have mobilized to collaborate with, public art has become artivism as it ventures into an expanded field of transdisciplinary practices. This is a field of many new possibilities where diverse domains such as aesthetics, sustainability, placemaking, social justice, and politics interact, and where people of disparate backgrounds can collaborate for grassroots discourse and uh, micropolitics. Thank you so much for that thorough introduction to the book. I really appreciate it. Minna, if I could turn to you now, can you tell us a little bit about your work generally and how it intersects with this project and how you got involved? Uh, thank you very much, Ben. And, and thank you, Majin, for preparing all the heart lifting, so to say, for the book and for our discussions today. So indeed, I have had the pleasure to know Majin for quite a few years now. And every once in a while, we uh, seem to um, have these opportunities to dig deeper into our shared research interests. So having said that, uh, yes, my background has been on, on, on Chinese studies and Chinese art per se in mainland China, but it has now extended uh, further and further towards East Asia and Southeast Asia. But what uh, my main focus has been, so to say, for about 20 years now, is the different kind of artistic and creative practices in public spaces. So usually this means the what we understand as public spaces in urban urban environment like the streets, the plazas, the marketplaces, etc. And of course, my focus is more on the not so established artists like graffiti writers, street artists, activists, etc., who are not so much studied in the realms of art history yet. So with this approach, I wish to contribute a little bit more uh, with the different perspectives and and kind of problematize what is understood as public art, because it is still very much kind of reserved for the art professionals and the established contemporary artists. Before we get into sort of the the meat of the volume and all of your three chapters, Hong, I want to turn to you now. What attracted you to the project? What's your own background and how did you get involved? Thank you, Ben. And I've been working on uh, art practices uh, uh, in an engagement with social issues. Uh, but I'm especially attracted to uh, this volume, uh, this volume because of the, its uh, regional approaches. And when it comes to the socially engaged, uh, so socially engaged art, this term, uh, this term uh, was coined in the North, uh, North American academic context. And I, I agree that this term, this term contains the global experience, uh, but, uh, but social engagement and socially engaged art is really not a universally applied a term. 
So that's why I'm, I'm quite attracted to this volumes approach uh, from the region and about the region. And also, uh, I have known Mei Chin, and she's a leading scholar in the field of uh, social, socially engaged art. And I know that she's a very hardworking person, so I had a full trust. So when she approached me, Hong, uh, do you want to be part of this project? And, and also, uh, uh, when I see the, all the names of contributors, they are all prominent scholars in the field of uh, art practice and social engagement. Yeah, so that's why um, yeah, I decided to be part of this project. Meichin, in your editorial introduction to the volume, you set the stage for the contributions that follow, many of which I hope we'll have a chance to discuss today in our conversation. But I sort of want to start as someone who's not an art scholar myself with a very basic question, I'm sure, for all three of you. How do you define socially engaged public art? What, what would you say are the keystones of this term? Uh, sure, Ben. Thanks for this indeed basic but very important question. First of all, I think about the term itself, uh, socially engaged public art. I came up with this term and thought maybe I was the first one to use it. So I was wondering whether it would make sense. When I was doing research and writing up the introduction chapter, I came across a couple of essays posted online around like 2015 and 2016. They used this term. And this discovery gave me some confidence. And I thought, okay, cool. This could be a valid term and I will stick to it. So I adopted this term in the title of the book after I finished writing the introduction. Now about the definition. So simply put, socially engaged public art is public art created in a public space or makeshift public space for the purpose of social engagement and intervention. And it is really an inclusive term and refers to various artistic and creative endeavors mobilized by art professionals in the public, often in collaboration with community members and or fellow citizens to address various social, cultural, environmental, and political issues. In this book, I specifically use socially engaged public art, or its acronym CIPA, to differentiate it from a more well-known term, socially engaged art, the Hong mentioned. Although in many instances, CIPA and socially engaged art are overlapping and interchangeable, I propose that CIPA can be seen as part of socially engaged art. The Object of comparison for socially engaged art is the practice of art as a whole. While well, the point of departure for SIPA is specifically the mainstream public art practice in East Asia, represented by monuments and sculptural installations in established public spaces, SIPA can take any of or the combination of many any established or novel art forms, such as sculptural, mural, exhibitions, workshops, cooperatives, dialogues, educational programs, ethnographic research, festivals, gardening, performance, and protests. Likewise, its location of implementation has also expanded from familiar locations such as parks, plazas, and other important urban public areas to almost everywhere, such as a back alley or a rundown house in an old urban neighborhood, a farming field or an entire little village, a busy street or an ordinary everyday living space. I hope I, I gave a, a good enough introduction for this term. Yeah, it really brings out the fact that socially engaged public art or SIPA can take many forms and it's a great transition into this Next line of questioning, which starts with you, Minna, your chapter explores one such type of socially engaged public art, namely street art and murals by women artists in Seoul, Hong Kong, and Tokyo. You begin by asking what publicness means in these contexts and what the role of public art in the future of such cities might be. Can you just explain what are the art pieces you discuss in your chapter and how do they offer a window into questions of both publicness and also gender in East Asia? Yes, thank you very much. It's uh, a very specific and maybe perhaps a preliminary discussion would I try to provoke in these questions of publicness in relation to public art and public space. 
so to say, because we often think still traditionally that public art is usually taking place in the cities, whereas, as Meijing just said, it can also be happening in the rural areas too, if we are willing to see the diversity of the public art. Yet the question of like publicness also needs to be a little bit more nuanced because we often tend to think that it is, it is public as long as it is displayed in a public space, which of course is only one dimension of publicness in an art project. So hence I would like to urge us to think how much the public, so to say, can be involved in all the steps in relation to the creating and evaluating and, for example, planning forward to the public art projects. So instead of having a city committee or an art institution or a non-profit art collective doing public art, how much just an individual person who is not an artist perhaps or art professional can gain something to say in these processes of publicness. So in my case, yes, I turned our gaze to female street artists because they are very much a minority in art and in art discourses. And with this, I was trying to also exemplify how, for example, uh, street art projects or murals can really open up completely new ways for people to be involved in public art. And one of my examples, for example, uh, includes a mural that was uh, painted by Hitotsuki on an outer wall of a house, which is owned by an old female Japanese person who had never even thought about she could be involved in a public art project before Hitotsuki actually asked her if we could paint on your wall. So here we have a very low threshold form of public art that is perhaps very accessible to different people and different publics across the Asia. Hong, your chapter brings in yet another dimension of this discussion of public art by exploring artists in South Korea and how they seek to reclaim and constitute new types of urban space. You write in the abstract for your chapter, quote, In their struggles, they present strategies of occupying and appropriating abandoned, devalorized, unclaimed, or open public space to make a claim for their rights to the place, the city, and further the nation. End quote. What are these strategies that these artists are employing, and how do they fit into the urban politics of South Korea more generally? Uh, Thank you for the question. I started with... uh, the reflections on uh, these terms, socially engaged public art in Asia, uh, in my case in South Korea. And I think that each term has its own questions about social and engagement. How do we uh, define the engagement, social engagement? And public art. So, so when I combined all these words, socially engaged public art in South Korea, uh, this com- uh, this combined uh, phrase gave me more questions. So uh, I start with uh, the reflections on the meaning of uh, uh, these terms and the combined. The phrase, and I'm and I'm then thinking about uh, South Korean conditions and artists' uh, responses to South Korean predicament, historical and social economic uh, predicament. Well, first of all, South Korea has been uh, had shown the very dramatic uh, political uh, political changes. Uh, as witnessed in the 1980s, the democratization movement and the very massive rallies uh, over 
uh, various social uh, issues in the 2000 and which culminate in the mass uh, candlelight visual, uh, visual rallies that led to actual the regime change in 2017. But then uh, this government uh, but failed in the uh, presidential election last month. So we have seen the, the political change. It's like a massive uh, pro-democracy uh, protest. And then the emergence of a new conservative regimes go up and down. And the, on the other hand, and South Korea has been experiencing uh, growing more and more uh, economic gaps between the rich and the poor, and then accompanying social issues. And these problems were most critically revealed in the housing crisis and how, uh, housing issues that was uh, aggravated in the urban, uh, uh, urban redevelopment that uh, produced the problems of uh, uh, generated issues of uh, displacement and eviction. And in, in these political, economic, and social conditions, and the artists, they look for ways to cope with these problems and ways to survive, not just as uh, artists, but as humans, <laughs> as humans. And then so uh, uh, the artists, they, uh, uh, they occupied and appropriated uh, uh, abandoned and unclaimed or open space, and then uh, try to make claims for their rights to the place and to the city and to the nation. And, and so in my, uh, in my chapter, I was trying to, uh, I'm trying to look for, uh, look for their um, powers, uh, powers of uh, uh, the artist uh, and their uh, socially engaged uh, practice with community members, but at the same time, I try to uh, examine the limitations at the same time risk that involved socially engaged uh, art practice. One thing that Minna mentioned a bit earlier in the conversation was that socially engaged public art, while often in urban centers, is not necessarily so. And that actually brings us back nicely to Mei Chin's chapter, because Mei Chin, in your chapter, you focus on art in rural China, specifically by looking at the Dongtao Village Graffiti Festival. What was the mission of this festival, and how does a focus on rural space cast new light on these questions of publicness, culture, and politics that we've been discussing so far? Thanks for the question. Uh, I think the ideas, the issues, or the the, the effort for uh, about concerning uh, publicness, culture, and politics are definitely very different uh, in different parts of East Asia and even in China, uh, in the city and in the countryside, they are very different. Right. So first, a little bit about uh, the graffiti festival itself. This festival took place in 2018. It involves more than 100 painters, art collectives, and graffiti writers from across China together in Dongtou Village, a uh, remote, formerly unknown, never heard of little village of Shandong Province, and in consultation or collaboration with residents of the village. They created uh, more than 130 murals and graffiti pieces on the walls of residential buildings along the village's streets. It was a largely self-funded pro project initiated by performance artists turned public art activist Wang Jun, who originated from this village. And the project or the festival lasted for more than 40 days. These art pieces, most are very large in scale, covering the entire wall of two or three-storied houses, include representational images of local people, history, customs, vegetables and fruits, natural sceneries, and popular Chinese deities and symbols of good fortune. 
They are also site-specific, interactive, and participatory paintings, as well as cartoonish imageries and expressive graffiti writings. The graffiti festival was publicized under a more fashionable phrase, Art Changes the Village. So its stated mission was to revitalize the decline of the Lolo public culture in this village and aiding Lolo reconstruction. So while it was a grassroots project, it tapped into the official discourse of Lolo revitalization, just promoted by President Xi Jinping since 2017 in order to gain local, pub, uh, local government's permission and support, without which such a major public undertaking would not be possible in the Chinese context. The visual effect and social impact of the graffiti festival was immediate. The 130 art pieces transformed the village from an ordinary little village populated by houses of monotonous whitish or grayish walls into a visually interesting place. They also stimulated a lot of attentions and discussions among locals and beyond about the potential of arts in local reconstruction. So while strategically aligned with the national discourse of local reconstruction, this festival is part of its initiator, Wangjin's larger ongoing and multi-location socially engaged art project that he started several years ago, aiming to address cultural and educational inequalities experienced by people living in marginalized geographical locations, such as rural towns and mountainous villages. So for the second part of your question concerning issues of publicness, culture, and politics, I think the significance of this rural folks approach can be understood from at least two major aspects. First, since 2009, with the founding of Public Art, the first magazine in China entirely dedicated to the subject. Ideas such as democracy, openness or publicness, and mass or public participation in public art making have gradually become key words among the mainstream art circles. There have been plenty of discussions on the importance of freeing public art production from the control of experts and political or economic elites and of making the process open to public participation for the cultivation of civic politics and the expansion of public sphere. Nonetheless, these discussions have taken for granted that the public art is a creature for the city and the urban dwellers. Rural residents living in China's Vast countryside are really considered to have the right to public art, even as spectators, not to mention as participants. I think this exclusion is a reflection of the material and the cultural divide between the rural and the urban living environments in China, a condition greatly exacerbated in recent decades with China's urban-centered and market-driven socioeconomic development. The city is perceived to be able to produce vibrant and sophisticated culture, while the countryside does not produce new culture and remains dull and parochial. Urban dwellers are perceived to uh, be worthy to be involved in the process of public art, while rural residents are not. It is against this backdrop that Tonto Village Graffiti Festival bears significance since it departs from the city-centered mainstream public art practice in China and envisions an ordinary rural village to be the site of a major public art project, and rural residents there be the audience and participants of contemporary creative practices. It is an effort to address and rectify the unequal distribution of cultural and artistic resources in China between the developed cities and the underdeveloped rural hinterlands. And the second point is, the festival tackles the decline of public society and communal life in the village. Since the reform era, structured public spaces created, and there were many during Mao's era in the countryside where people used to gather regularly for collective undertakings and public life have decreased dramatically or totally disappeared. The increasing dominance of the market logic in rural society has reduced occasions that used to foster cooperation and communal ties. Donto villages is of no exception. In the past, farmers tend to help each other in their agricultural activities, such as planting and harvesting, 
and celebrated or mourned together on occasions, uh, either happy uh, or sad, such as a wedding ceremony, the birth of a new baby, or the passing of an elder. These seasonal events and communal rituals created plenty of opportunities throughout the year for people to engage with each other and stay acquainted with each other's whereabouts at different stages of their lives. This is what the sociologist official Tong described as acquaintance society uh, in his study of the social relations in rural China. However, all these occasions can now be outsourced to professional teams such as seasonal workers for agricultural tasks and catering companies for all of life's occasions. As a result, there is a marketization of social relations and neighbors are becoming less involved in each other's lives since they rely less and less on the help of each other and more and more on services provided by the market. In other words, Social interactions in rural villages are increasingly resembling that of the cities where people live next to each other in apartment buildings do not know much about their neighbors. The fact that many young people have left the villages and only returned during major holidays certainly does not help with the situation. Consequently, the communal ties among villagers have greatly loosened their desire and even capability to participate in public affairs as well as their sense of community and attachment to the village as a whole diminished. And so in this context, the graffiti festival functioned as a new communal event that created plenty of occasions for villagers to discuss with each other as they participated in the process or simply tried to make sense of this unprecedented public event and the artworks that appeared on the walls. Given that uh, many art pieces created have explicit connections to various aspects of the village, its past and present, they enable villagers to relate and can thus help to activate their memory of a collective history and accordingly enhance the sense of belonging, shared community, and cultural identity. It is the activation of local knowledge and history through creative processes that uh, make uh, the graffiti festival a valuable social and communal practice. And uh, I would like to emphasize that uh, the two problems that the graffiti festival seeks to engage, first, uh, the unequal distribution of cultural and artistic resources between the urban and the Lolo. Second, the decline of Lolo public society and communal life, both fundamentally concerns politics because they are the result of the established norms about the proper allocation of social cultural values and financial resources. Since the beginning of the 21st century, some Chinese independent art professionals have initiated art and cultural projects in the countryside to challenge these politics by introducing a paradigm shift in thinking and doing about the relation between the urban and the Lolo. Their grassroots experiments aiming to bridge the gap between the rural and the urban while creating opportunities to engage rural residents in the production of contemporary art and culture have over time accumulated cultural and political momentum and become known as arts-based rural reconstruction movement. And currently, we can almost say it has become a national movement with the government's renewed emphasis on the development of the countryside and its heavy investment in infrastructure building and arts programs in rural regions since the launch of the rural revitalization campaign around 2017 and 2018. And it appears to be a shift of paradigm in allocation of social cultural values and financial resources in terms of the position of the countryside in China's overall national development scheme. Of course, new problems and challenges are emerging. It is usually the case when the policy initiative is implemented top-down nationwide. But I think I uh, have talked long enough concerning what the folks on little spaces entails in terms of public artist practice. So I will stop here.
I want to stay with the national politics of China for a moment and turn to you again, Minna. Um, a few years ago, you and Meiqin actually co-edited another volume as collaborators entitled Visual Arts, Representations, and Interventions in Contemporary China. That was published by Amsterdam University Press in 2018. And Minna, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of your early major research projects concerned the image of Mao. So broadly, how does art particularly public art, function in the political climate of China today? Uh, Thank you very much for this quite an intricate question, which, of course, I'm very much hoping Meijin to join me to answer, as you already started. Uh, Because, of course, um, these uh, questions of of politics and art and public art and and, um, the censorship and and funding and instrumentalization of arts are, of course, a huge topic. And it has been changing quite a lot recently. As Meijing was just elaborating, there is a new emphasis on on art in rural areas, indeed, throughout the China, if I'm not mistaken. Um, But yes, indeed. So um, one of my first works was about Chairman Mao and his image, and I do still come across it all the time. So um, maybe it's it's good to start to by clarifying and emphasizing that, for example, for me, um, the artistic and creative practices in public space, uh, what is allowed to happen, what is perhaps supported by the government, and what is simply just kind of tolerated by the communities, or what is... uh, you know, forbidden. It's it's all extremely illuminating about the sociopolitical and cultural conditions of the country in question and how they are changing. So whether we speak about China or Japan or South Korea, Hong, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the public space really tells us a lot about the current issues and and topics and problems in the society, especially the art in the public space. So in other words, we can learn a lot about any single country if we pay attention to public art and how it is transformed throughout the histories. So, of course, if we would take a trajectory of Mao's image for the 60 years, we could pinpoint the most important phases of Chinese history through that one image and how it is used. But that's not the topic today. But um, yes, indeed. So um, the function of the public art in the political climate of China today, um, it could be approached through... Uh, categorizing the different forms of public art based on the agency. So, of course, there's a big difference whether it is commissioned by uh, the political institutions as a top-down manner, because a lot of the public art traditionally is made to support the chosen narratives of the country in question, wherever, you know, regardless of the whether we speak Asia or Europe, you find the public art about the heroes and, and very specific images, what the governments want to propose. But then again, of course, we have a lot of different forms of agency now coming up. Besides the collectives and, and individual artists that also Meijing was so much elaborating on already, it is perhaps important to take into account the so-called uh, commercial entities. So a lot of shopping malls, hotels, different kind of entrepreneurs are commissioning public art for their own purposes. So this kind of public art is not usually very political or even socially engaged. It, it can be, but not so much. And of course, then we have these uh, bottom-up grassroots initiatives that can take a bit of a different take. But having said that, in China, maybe it can be summarized, that uh, creating directly antagonistic 
or having a completely unauthorized public art today is not possible. But having said that, as Meijing just elaborated, public art projects are providing valuable ways to connect, to have new relationships and to have this knowledge exchange between different audiences. So I hope this helps a little bit and I really would invite Meijin and Hong to comment and correct me. Yeah, Meijin, if you have anything to add and also Hong, does that bring up anything for you in terms of South Korea by way of comparison and contrast or convergence, I suppose? Well, I'm very, uh, very much agree with uh, Mina's points, especially about the public art really uh, tells the social history of the place and the country. Yeah, so if one is interested in South Korea, <laughs> and then one way to learn its uh, history is to study public art, right? The standing in uh, the, yeah, public space and then and accompanying the controversies and around public art and that one can uh, really uh, have a sense about the society and the country. Yeah, and I would like to uh, echo very much what Hong uh, is saying and also related with what Mina was uh, elaborating. Yeah, especially see when there's like a huge uh, political structure, uh, political uh, oppression or the like the climate for uh, cultural and artist expression is being tightened up. I especially see kind of creative impulses coming from bottom up and a lot of artists and art professionals and organizations are actually appropriating you know, the official narrative for their own purpose and that's what really is exciting part about my research it's i always look into people who are sneaking in uh, into their agenda into the political narrative into the political discourse which is fun it must be quite challenging making also of course, yes, it's, it's definitely a, a challenging environment and I heard that many people are talking about that it's harder to do things than before, right? And around the, uh, eight or nine years ago, it's getting harder, but uh, I really don't see everybody saying because it's hard, we're not going to do it anymore. They are saying we are going to be more creative and we we'll try to do what we want to do anyway. So that I think is the kind of split I really learned so much in my field of research. As I listen to you guys discuss this, I come from an anthropology background myself. So the method I'm most familiar with is ethnography. I wonder methodologically, how do you guys approach this work of both understanding the creation, but also the reception of public art in these different contexts you're working in? That's sort of a general question for any of you. For me, it's always a combination of art historical approach which involves uh, looking at images, collecting images, and uh, analyzing images. And uh, I think a little bit the anthropological part for me is I always try to go to the place that I do research. I have to go to a place to understand the space, the place, the geography, and the people there. And I try to talk to uh, as many people as possible when I'm in a place, including you know, the artists there and the you know, just residents there and taxi drivers who, you know, I like grab all every opportunity when I go there. I've talked to the driver. Did you know about this? Uh, what do you think? Uh, or so that's how that's basically my approach. For me, uh, I actually learned a lot from uh, anthropology discipline, and I ask my uh, my colleagues who is doing uh, anthropological research because um, before this project, uh, my research didn't really involve the human subject. I just used the archive documents and analyzed them. But while I'm doing this socially engaged art uh, practice, and I had to learn, and I, th uh, I think a lot how I'm going to do Right, and then um, I try to uh, be. I try to uh, be part of the 
uh, the project if possible. If the project uh, is still uh, ongoing, I try to be engaged. So uh, uh, I try to be engaged in the project in the longer term, if possible. So not just going there, uh, not just making one or two visits and collect materials and come back home, write about it. I try to be engaged uh, with the pro- uh, project. And, and another thing uh, that really make me think a lot while I'm doing, uh, 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 doing research on social, socially engaged artists that my positioning, how I'm going to position myself, right? So it's a question of ethics, right? I go there, I visit there uh, and meet artists who is working on, working on the community engaged uh, uh, practice in the place where uh, socially very much uh, marginalized, like uh, uh, they live in the building, they are about to be uh, demolished. And how I'm going to position myself because my house is not going to, uh, my house is not like that. Yeah, I live in Toronto and Canada. It's a much, uh, much more comfortable uh, the, uh, place. And I go there, visit there, and I come back. So that really think uh, make me think a lot about position of academic and position of the the researcher, right? And how I'm gonna so position myself, and then am I just making use of their their problems for my own career? advancement right so yeah so i try to be uh, socially engaged while while i'm doing this research and writing so i'm uh, that question is open-ended and i'm still i always asking me what what you are doing how you are doing what is your ethics yes these are very very important questions for everyone to think thoroughly in in terms of research how we approach our own work and the work of others and i must admit that i i very much echo what Meijin and hong were already saying and for example when when i started to research graffiti already uh, in the beginning of the 21st century there simply wasn't any writings about it when I was doing the research in mainland China. So I, I just had to be involved. I had to be there on the scene and find the people myself to talk with them. And that has kind of sticked with me. Like you really need to know the geographic location, the people, the relations, as Mei was saying. And I've been very lucky that I have had these opportunities to spend years in different cities in Asia. And of course, I'm I'm also very much aware of my own position and I'm always questioning it because I'm not Asian myself. So what right do I have to be involved, uh, to try to be locally engaged? And what can I give to the artists so that I'm not using them for my own career? So I very much share that with Hong. And actually, I've taken the stance that I don't publish anything without a permission. And I make sure that I give back whenever I can, whatever I can, whatever the people are asking from me. It can be a translation of of a baking recipe. It can be me babysitting the kids of the artist. It can be just, you know, two hours of a conversation or a tip of, of, of an art residency elsewhere. But it, it, in these days, we really need to think about how we are as inclusive as possible and taking the responsibility to not to exploit the communities that we are researching. If I add just one more, Amina, I'm Korean, but I don't live there, right? Mm. So I'm not much different from you, right? I'm Korean and doing research on South Korea, but I don't live there. I live in Canada, right? So somehow I become a helicopter researcher, right? Going there and come back home, right? So uh, I think 
yeah, doing research there, but I'm writing about uh, their practice, and I publish my uh, my work, uh, for example, uh, in this edited volume. And I think this is one way I uh, give back what yes. I got. Yeah, definitely. And and I would say that this volume is a. A wonderful example how all these different perspectives are needed by the different scholars uh, wherever we are perhaps living and, and with our different uh, uh, knowledge backgrounds and, and methods and, and approaches because uh, this topic just is so understudied if I may say so so more and more perspectives is, is of course it's it's invaluable I would say the elephant in every room these days is the pandemic, and this book came out during this pandemic. I wonder, how did the pandemic change the role of public art or even the possibility of public art in an era when, for the past two plus years, we've been very much not able to be in public? Um, I just wonder if you could reflect a bit on how COVID transformed the possibility of public art. Sure. Uh I guess I'll go first. So yeah, it definitely is a very important question. Uh, we all experienced that it's true that COVID-19 has massively disrupted our experience of public space, right? not just normal life, but uh, it also disrupted the work of many other projects that I have been uh, following. But Actually, I also have seen new creative impulses being stimulated to respond and address this disruption and even probe into bigger questions concerning the pandemic, which is the broken relationship between human society and the natural environment and also among humans themselves. I thought about this a lot because I actually wrote an article uh, focusing on the uh, mobilization of uh, visual uh, materials as protest uh, against uh, the problems going on in mainland China. So for one thing, I really see artists have embraced new possibilities to create virtual public spaces that are not limited to specific localities, uh, apparently taking advantage of the reality that people are getting used to spending more time online and communicating digitally. For example, in early 2020, several uh, public art projects were initiated right after the lockdown order was implemented in mainland China, and they invited ordinary citizens to participate in collaborative art projects that documented their everyday experience living under the threat of the pandemic or expressed their understanding of the pandemic and the government's handling of it. And these, according to uh, those initiators, these were much better participated than they would be before the pandemic, because some project actually was uh, one project actually uh, the artist launched much many years ago, and really she did not get much participation. But at the beginning of uh, two thousand twenty, uh, she was very uh, pleased with like you know the spontaneous response from people uh, through her uh, digital call. So. Uh, these projects really expanded the possibility of public participation to build the dialogues and foster micro-politics concerning pressing social issues. And another important new development uh, since the outbreak of the pandemic uh, that I see is the growing interest in taking ecology, ecosystems, or environmental degradation as the subject of public art making for the purpose of envisioning creative solutions and fostering collective actions. I have sensed in quite obvious ecological term, if we can call it ecological term, in the practice of socially engaged public art, with many more artists getting involved in creative activities that address the broken relationship between the human society and the ecosystems that we are part of for the purpose of finding ways to restore the natural ecosystems and repair the damages being inflicted upon the environment. While uh, artworks and projects aiming to raise public awareness about environmental problems have been going on since the 1990s in mainland China, I have really seen a different level of engagement and the sense of urgency and agency among the art communities aiming to promote and practice ecological literacy about the underlying interdependence of all seemingly different and independent systems in invented by human societies, such as art, 
education, science, politics, and economics, and in particular, the importance of the reciprocal dependence between human societies and our natural environment. And uh, I definitely sense that the term Anthropocene has appeared with more frequency among other communities, and often uh, with negative connotations, as many people have come to realize the fragility of the human systems and need to learn from and coexist with the natural systems. So these, I think, are exciting new developments that have happened since the outbreak of the pandemic. Hong or Mina, if you have anything to add, please feel free. Um, so, yes, indeed, what Meijing was already uh, elaborating is, is very uh, thorough take on these changes. One thing, if I may add, is that, of course, in, in some locations, uh, because of the art institutions were closed, you couldn't go into the art exhibitions, um, it actually enhanced the importance and value of public art. And there was quite a lot of initiatives in, in different cities, uh, for example, in Europe, in, in new kinds of public art, because you couldn't go into the art museums. So it was booming around. And the second take, perhaps, is that um, there was a new take, for example, by different NPOs, um, uh, some UNESCO initiatives, etc., on, on uh, enhancing the public awareness of the COVID-19 through public art. So especially in areas where people are not perhaps keen to read so much, they actually initiated different kind of murals to educate people about hygiene, about taking the vaccines. And then, of course, the third aspect, which was quite interesting, was that boom of solidarity that came through in street art to support the nurses, to support the people who are working in these dire circumstances, and just to support each other to be more considerate. So a few uh, thoughts from my side in, in terms of street art. Um, if I add um, a couple of thoughts that I have had uh, while I've experienced uh, this pandemic, which is over two years, right? Pandemic is still going on. And the, um, the phobia that I've been thinking about, the phobia, like virus phobia and germ phobia, and also phobia toward people, <laughs> toward people, we are afraid of uh, the people, the worrying that what if uh, that person carries the virus? And also we have seen uh, the, um, how do I uh, put it? Yeah, and phobia and question of uh, the race or racism, and especially uh, the anti-Asian racism, uh, they came to the surface. Uh, during especially the early stage of a uh, pandemic, while we had very limit, uh, limited knowledge and information about how it uh, about the uh, breakup of the the COVID, we had a fear, and the fear then uh, generated the phobia, and then the phobia then grew to anti-Asian racism, and and. In South Korea, you know, the different uh, treatment, right, uh, toward migrant workers, non-ethnic Korean Koreans. So the, we saw the very uh, uh, the ugly, the phobia, right, uh, toward uh, other people. And yeah, so, and then that all lead to the question of how we can how we can recover social engagement how we can um, have uh, how you how we can be hopeful for better social engagement so the uh, that social engagement the question of a social engagement the possibility of social engagement i think uh, came back with uh, more questions Yeah, and this coming together again in various forms of social engagement also includes our own scholarly practices. So maybe by way of conclusion, as we 
approach or past the one hour mark, I wonder, were there any new questions for any of you that grew out of this volume as you, as you collaborated on this project? Did it spark anything for something you might like to pursue in the future, either together as a group of collaborators or individually in your own personal works? Editing uh, this book for me was a great opportunity to learn more about the socially engaged public, uh, no doubt about it, and the cultural politics of a given community or society that the individual art professionals or art collectives have to negotiate with in order to push forward their projects. One question that kept coming to me was, how can we learn from each other more effectively so we don't have to reinvent the wheels of social engagement as Hong was uh, elaborating or questioning like this, uh, the potential of this. And where can we go from here as a community? And I think specifically, I was thinking questions about like, can socially engage the public art become a common language of the 21st century? And if it can, how would it manifest in different places, spaces, and communities? And how can it help promote systematic thinking and transform the sense of urgency that many of us have experienced in a broader, into a broader sense of agency? I myself definitely became more interested in thinking about the potential of public art for imagining and creating better systems for lives, not just uh, us, uh, human species, but all lives sharing this planet. And uh, for future agendas, I think I have developed a much stronger interest in ecological art, as you probably can uh, hear uh, from my earliest uh, 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 talks, especially projects that are grounded on public participation and seek to foster collective actions to promote and practice ecological literacy. And I already have a term for it. I don't know whether it's been uh, used already before uh, by other people, but I like to call it eco-public art. And I hope to pursue this line of inquiry and write about the Chinese eco-public art, which I really think is developing fast recently. I know Mina uh, has developed a similar interest in ecological art, or I think you probably prefer the term environmental art. But I'm really interested in, in learning more about uh, the interactions of art, ecology, environmental activism, civic politics that are taking place uh, uh, in different parts of China. And I will hope I will be you know, there and uh, be on the ground so I can learn in person all this exciting new development. And yeah, to add, <laughs> Mina and I actually talked briefly about working together uh, on this topic for maybe a conference panel or maybe a publication project in the future. So I am really looking forward to new opportunities to collaborate. Um, thank you, Meijing. Me too. It's it's. Let's hope we get to meet in person next year for the conference. And indeed. Um, the environmental art is one of the main themes I've, I've been keen to investigate a little bit more and more. Um, and also, I do hope that I find these opportunities to return to Asia to do some thorough fieldwork, which has not been possible during these two past years. And also, on my side, because of some other projects I've been uh, collaborating with. I'm also taking a bit uh, a one more step further to think about how these different forms of art may or may not be contributing to civil society formation because this is kind of like implied in, in a lot of art discussions but it's not been thoroughly theorized. And of course, art takes a lot of different positionalities and, and depending on the agency, it could also be working against the civil society formation, even if it's labeled as socially engaged. But that's then to you, Hong. What is your future about? Uh, I would like to uh, continue to work on uh, socially engaged art practice in relation to uh, social and environmental disasters and accompanying uh, subsequent uh, traumas. So in particular, uh, the COVID, right? Uh, this is very, uh, it gives a really 
traumatic uh, the experience to us, right? And then how do we then cope with these environmental and social traumas uh, out of uh, this COVID, uh, COVID pandemic? Yeah, that is what I'd like to uh, work on further in relation to socially engaged art practice with a focus of traumas um, dealing with uh, this COVID uh, pandemic. As all of these new projects reach their publication stage in the coming years, I hope you guys will come back on the podcast or contribute to the newsletter and continue staying involved with our institute here in Leiden because we would love to follow those developments. Until then, I want to thank, sincerely thank all three of you. It's never easy getting multiple academics together in one place, let alone when we're stretched across three time zones in Southern California, Toronto, and here in the Netherlands. So I really appreciate you guys finding and making the time to do this and for all of your insightful comments today about your new book. Thank you all for joining us. That was Mei-Ching Wong, Hong Kao, and Mina Valyaka. Mei-Ching is the editor of the new book, Socially Engaged Public Art in East Asia, Space, Place, and Community in Action, published by Vernon Press, to which Hong and Mina also contributed. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time. <laughs>